Hey guys, let's uh, come back in. There was a there was a clipboard that had a class. Did that go around somewhere? Okay, let's just let's start on the side here. Please let's bring it to the front. Yeah, we'll we'll pass this clipboard around. And if you had a chance to check your name or add your name, I understood that we brought. I think I had like 55 books and we ran out. And so I'm going to have another, I'll buy another box of those books this week if you can get one. And you can just call the office and, and tell Lizzie you can get a book and you can come by and get one free. And so I'm sorry if you didn't get one because it's important that you have one of these books to help you. Now we are, yeah, Jonathan's doing something. She can okay. Read, but I will come back and get her another one because we read okay. her house. Did somebody not get a book that would like to get one this morning? Anybody not get one? Okay. Okay, we just go ahead and keep it there. Okay. Right. I just thought somebody could trade it. There are some people well, still out there, Gary. So okay. Yeah, All right, we'll see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, again, as you guys are coming in, does someone not get a book? Raise your hand. Need a book and get one? Okay. All right, Summer Shaw, then we're going to start back because I, I didn't want to be done by noon. And I want us to go back to this book to uh, page 41. Because some of you are saying, well, you still haven't got to my, my thing yet. Well, we're going to get to it. I am going to skip a few things. So, <clears throat> All right, page 41. Second paragraph. Okay, as already mentioned, fear can produce... So page 41, second paragraph, under panic spasms. As already mentioned, fear can produce a state of constant tension or... It can take the form of intense, recurring spasms of panic that start in our middle and seem to spread like a white-hot flame all over our body, passing through the chest, up the spine, into the face, down the arms, and even to the groin, into the tips of the toes. Those of you who've had that know exactly what that feels like. If you suffer from these spasms, you'll probably find that whereas you had some control over them at the beginning of your illness, you now may seem to have lost control and live in constant dread of them. Your nerves have become so sensitized that they discharge panic instantly at the slightest cause. Feeling follows thought so swiftly, it, as it, it is as if thought and feeling are one. Sometimes it is almost as if there is no thought, only feeling. That is why panic spasm may often seem to come unbidden out of the blue. Perhaps you will understand more readily if I compare the adrenaline-releasing nerves to the trigger of a gun. When the trigger is rusty, it is hard to pull. When well-oiled and used, it responds readily. The nerve trigger is, sensitized, is a sensitized person valiantly trying to fight his way through panic. Sorry, I didn't read that right. The nerve trigger in a sensitized person valiantly trying to fight his way through panic is so well used, 
it fires off, and fire is a good word, at any encouragement. That is why the sufferer is bewildered. Can't understand what is happening to him. He used to not be like this. Of course not. He's not always been sensitized. Okay, he's talking about panic. Okay, and by the way, guys, did you not did you not get a chance to check your name? And yeah, let's, let's just send it straight back there, if you would. Let's pass it back, kind of. Thanks. The idea of what she's talking about here is is that like I don't know if you guys have shot guns or not, but sometimes some triggers you barely touch them. And you can gun a fire. Some triggers you get a long, hard pull. That's how it is for some people that are struggling with panic, is they get so sensitized that it gets sets off real easy. It's because you're sensitized. And when the sensitization you heal from that, so will that trigger be harder and harder to pull. Okay. Okay, uh, page 42, second paragraph. Analyzing fear, two separate fears. Cure lies in desensitization, and there's no doubt that the key to desensitization lies in learning how to cope with panic. Recurring panic, more than any other nervous symptom, helps to keep nervous illness alive. To cope with panic, it is important for the nervously ill person to understand that when he panics, he feels not one fear, as he supposes, but two separate fears. Because his nerves are sensitized, one fear follows the other so swiftly, it is as if the two fears are one. With each wave of panic, there's always two separate fears involved. I call these the first and second fears. The importance of recognizing the two separate fears cannot be overestimated. Because although the nervously ill person, as a result of sensitization, may have no direct control over the first fear, with understanding and practice, he can learn how to control the second fear. And it is the second fear that is keeping the first fear alive, keeping him sensitized, keeping him nervously ill. Okay, now she's gonna talk about first fear and second fear, and this is important for us to understand. Okay, I'll explain these two separate fears more fully. Everyone experiences first fear from time to time. It is a fear that comes reflexively almost automatically in response to some threatened danger. It is normal in intensity. We understand it. We accept it. We cope with the danger and the fear passes. However, the flash of first fear that comes to a sensitized person in response to danger is not normal in intensity. It can be so over overwhelmingly intense so electric in its swiftness, so out of proportion to the danger causing it that a sensitized person cannot readily dismiss it. Indeed, he usually immediately recoils from it. And as he does, this adds a second flash of fear to the first flash. He adds fear of the first flash. Indeed, he may be much more concerned with the physical feeling of panic than with the original danger. And because that old bogey, sensitization, prolongs the first flash, the second flash may seem, actually seem to join it. This is why the two fears often fill as one. A flash of fear may follow no more than the sudden impact of a cold blast of wind. It may follow merely some mildly unpleasant memory. 
It may come in response to a thought only vaguely understood, or as I mentioned earlier, it may seem to come out of the blue. Can you see how susceptible a sensitized person could so easily become to the first flashing fear? And he's particularly susceptible to first fear when he's hemmed in by people, such as a school gathering or in a church. Oh my goodness, here it is again. A nervously ill person has only to think of being trapped for first fear to flash instantly. To this he immediately adds plenty of second fear as he thinks, oh my goodness, here it is again. I can't stand it. I'll make a fool of myself in front of all these people. Let me get out of here quickly, quickly. With each quickly, he has more and more panic, more and more tension. And as the tension mounts, naturally the panic mounts in intensity. He's never quite sure just how intense the panic can become or what crisis it may bring. He's sure there must be a crisis in which he vaguely imagines himself being taken out, taken off somewhere. This hovering threat holds such menace that at the peak of panic, the sufferer thinks he can no longer think clearly or act calmly. This is why he sits near the door at the restaurant, the back of the school meeting, so that he can, as I've already mentioned, slip out unnoticed if his fear seems to grow beyond him. He does not understand that it is the fear he adds himself, the succession of second fears, that may finally drive him to find refuge outside the building. He doesn't understand that it is all those oh my goodnesses, all those what ifs that build up into what he calls a spell, a crisis. If he could but realize that his body is not a machine, that it has a limited capacity to produce adrenaline, that therefore the first fear can come only in a wave, it must always die down. If he but waits and does not fall into the trap of stoking his fire with second fear. Again, that last, I'll underline that last one there. If he could but realize that his body's on a machine, that has limited capacity to produce adrenaline, that therefore the first fear can only in a wave and must always die down. Can only come in a wave and must always die down. If he but waits and does not fall into the trap of stoking his fires with second fear. No mounting panic. If we were prepared to sit, if he were prepared to sit in his seat, relax his body to the best of his ability, let it sag, flop in his seat, let the panic flash, let it do its very worst, let it flash right through him without withdrawing tensely from it there would be no mounting tension, no mounting panic. Panic. His sensitized body may continue to flash panic for a while, but the panic would not mount. And he'd be able to sit there and see the function through. Although it is bombardment by second fear, day after day, week after week, for one excuse or another that keeps nerves alerted always trigger to fire that first fear so sensitively, flashingly, electrically, when under stress. So unmask the second fear. How important is it to unmask panic? And see those two separate fears? How important is it to learn how to spot second fear and send it packing? 
Okay, underline this. Recognizing second fear and coping with it is the way to desensitization. The way to recovery. Let me read that again. Underline it. Recognizing second fear and coping with it is the way to desensitization, the way to recover. I assure you of this. Recognizing second fear is made easier when we realize it can usually be prefixed by, oh my goodness, what if? Oh my goodness, it took four capsules to get me to sleep last night. What if it four doesn't work tonight? Oh my goodness, what if I get worse, not better? Oh my goodness, so many what ifs make up second fear. Now, just as you examine and describe your churning stomach, sweating hands, etc., on the next occasion when you panic, I want you to examine this feeling. Describe it to yourself as it sweeps through you. Must you let a physical feeling hold you in such terror? Must you let a hot feeling in your stomach, a burning flash up your spine? Pins and needles in your hands, a throbbing feeling in your head, even a weak feeling in your legs spoil life? Think about this and realize you are being bluffed by physical feeling. Terrible indeed, but still a physical feeling. All the symptoms that come with stress, the pounding heart, churning stomach, weak feelings, etc., can be called first fears because they too come unbidden, like the flash of fear that comes in answer to danger. And to these symptoms, the nervously ill person certainly has plenty of second fear. Certainly adds many, oh my goodnesses, many what is, more than enough to keep his fires well burning. Oh yes, he has plenty of second fear to these symptoms. By analyzing fear and its symptoms in this way, and seeing them as physical feelings that conform to a set pattern, and are of no great medical significance, you unmask fear, and with it, your own illness, and only a bogey remains. And when you decide to accept this bogey and add no more second fear, or as little as you can manage, the road to recovery lies open before you. Now, even with great success at learning how to cope with second fear, it takes time for desensitization. Okay, this next the whole thing, this whole paragraph needs to be underlined here, guys, but just start or something. I'll read this one, let's read it. It takes time for desensitization. The nervously ill person must understand and accept that his sensitized body will flash first fear from time to time for some time to come. If you're like this, I assure you that if you, if you do not continue to whip up your sensitized body with second fear, it will heal its sensitized nerves as naturally as it would heal a broken leg. This takes time to face and accept one's nervous symptoms without adding second fear and to let time pass for recovery. How important this is. It works miracles if you're prepared to do this. But it's not easy to face, accept, and let time pass. It is especially difficult to let time pass because you may already have let so much time pass in suffering and despair that you're ask, and asking you to let more time pass may seem an impossible demand. It is difficult, but necessary.
Okay, skip over to page 48. I want to talk a little bit about palpitations. This is important to know. Again, the more we know about what's going on in the body, the less we're afraid of it. The less we're afraid of it, the less second fear works. When second fear goes away, the body starts to heal from being sensitized. Y'all got that? Okay. Page 48, palpitations. This short attack of alarmingly quick, quickly beating heart may come, and so often does, just as you're going off to sleep. Or maybe even when you uh, wake from your sleep. Do not sit up and panic. The more you panic, the more adrenaline is released by your glands and nerves, and the quicker your heart beats. Your heart starts beating at night a little bit. Don't sit up and go, oh no. What did you just do? You just sent drilling into it. Just lay there and let it be. Roll over, get cozy. Just let it be. All of you may think, ah, I wish the doctor could feel my pulse now. My heart's really racing. I still suspect that if you take your own pulse, you'll find that it's rates not, not much more than 120 beats a minute. Even if it is, it's not important. A healthy heart can tolerate a rate over 200 beats per minute for many hours, even days, without evidence of damage. Also, you may think you can feel your heart beating in your throat. And I'm sure it will burst at any moment. I can assure you it will not. The full bursting feeling is no more than the unusually hard pumping of the main arteries in your neck. Your heart is nowhere near your throat. If you can see how thick and appreciate how powerful your heart muscle is, you'd lose all fear of it bursting or being damaged by palpitations. I must remind you that I am assuming that your doctor has examined your heart has told you so, so you, that your trouble is not your heart, it's nerves. So relax to the best of your ability. And she talks about that in a chapter we're not going to cover. I'm going to talk about some other stuff in the handout in a minute. And let your heart race, and, race, as it chooses, race until it chooses to slow, remembering that it is a good heart, merely temporarily overstimulated, and that such stimulation will not harm it and will soon cease. Should you tap your prolong, does it matter so much? When you understand the palpitations, are they so terrible? If necessary, you can ease yourself by talking to someone or getting up and drinking a glass of milk. Walking about will not harm your heart, even though it is palpitating. If you prefer to stay in bed, by all means do, but lie there as relaxed as possible and let your heart race without shrinking from it. If you do this, one of these nights, you'll surprise yourself by dropping off to sleep in the middle of an attack. And you, now, some of you think, I can't imagine having that happen in much sleep. That's when you, when you totally accept it, you'll sleep, you go to sleep. And the more you can do that, the less it'll palpitate. Until eventually it doesn't do it anymore. As acceptance calms your nerves, the attacks will be less frequent until they no longer come. Many years ago, when studying under strain, I occasionally had palpitations. I have not had an attack since. Can you see how foolish it would have been had I become agitated by them? My heart has served me well during the ensuing 30 years. I think she was late 80s when she wrote this one, this book. Okay, uh, 51, just turn to, I'm skipping some here guys, but you can read them. I wanna talk about uh, inability to take a deep breath. I'm talking about the ones I've seen most common with people. All right, inability to take a deep breath. Just as tension causes scalp muscles to spasm and pain, so does it cause chest and lung muscles to spasm. 
and the patient to complain that he cannot expand his chest sufficiently to take a deep breath. He may walk around the house sighing until asked by an exasperated relative, please stop those lamentations. The effect of such spasm is temporary and is released with, released with relief from tension. It does not harm your chest. Your chest is not diseased. You'll always get enough breath, although sometimes perhaps not as freely as you'd like. So if your chest is all tight, hard to breathe, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. All right, next one. Let your breathing center do the work. Some patients are so afraid they will suffocate that they struggle and fight for breath, believing that unless they win the battle, the end is near. I explained to these people that nature was not so careless as to put such a responsibility in their hands. How do they think they breathe while they sleep? This question never fails to surprise them. Guys, you are going to get enough air. Some people, they panic, they might get enough air. You know, and then they, they take short, shallow breaths. You know, you can actually do this. You can actually take, go ahead and take deep breaths. I'll do this. Take a deep breath. Take five seconds to breathe in, five seconds to hold it, five seconds to breathe out. Let's do it. So you can, you can have, you can have your body can be in panic and you can still make yourself breathe like that. And you, you, and you really by saying, I get enough air, you get plenty of air. In fact, she goes on to talk about that we have a breathing center in our brain, which automatically regulates our breathing by responding to changing levels of carbon dioxide in our blood. To illustrate how this center works, I asked one of these apprehensive people to see how long he can hold his breath. How long he can ask you to stop breathing? She goes on to say he holds his breath, eventually he breathes, right? We all do. Hold your breath as long as you want. You will breathe. Because your body's going to want breath, want, your breathing center's going to take over. Blow into a paper bag. Shallow breathing may have, have one harmless yet frightening effect. The nursery ill person may breathe so rapidly his misguided efforts to get much air into his lungs that, that he may temporarily wash out too much carbon dioxide from his lungs. He may feel giddy you know, she says, a breathing in a bag. Now, I think, I think most people aren't going to carry a brown paper bag around with them. I just tell people to do that. Do that simple little, little thing we just did. Take five or six seconds to breathe in, five or six seconds to hold it, five or six seconds to breathe out. You will not faint. You will not. And so you, you can take over the, that part. All right, lump in the throat. Some nervous people complain that they feel a constant pressure in the throat or they have a lump stuck in their throat while they keep trying to dislodge by swallowing. Some say the throat seems swollen inside. These patients are convinced that there is something seriously wrong with them, even cancer. Once again, we are merely concerned with muscular spasms of nervous origin. We call this globus hystericus, hystericus which means hysterical lump. It too will vanish with relaxation and acceptance. Although in the meantime, it can be so aggravating that the person afflicted finds it difficult to believe that such a definite feeling of pressure can be only spasm. It is not always easy to convince him of the nervous origin of his lump, and he is reassured only after the doctor has made a thorough examination of his throat. So again, another symptom of the same the way we deal with that, we deal with all symptoms. Accept. 
face except float. Let time pass. Giddiness can be a most upsetting phenomenon. To us, the stability of our world depends very much on seeing it as we are accustomed. Suddenly, to have the impression that the furniture is speeding across the room can indeed be an alarming experience. By the way, I think uh, I've seen a lot of vertigo. There'd be a, there's a level of giddiness and people have vertigo with this. And we're going to talk about the importance of sleep and rest in a moment. But most people, if they will just do it, sell this book. I know, I know people that have been taken out of their jobs because of vertigo. Pilots that are they're no longer flying because of vertigo. And that doesn't have to be the case. That, that will all go away if they do what we're talking about in this book and get the rest and let their adrenal system heal. It'll go away. But giddiness is, is just an uneasiness, an unsteadiness, kind of almost dizziness, which she talks about, which talks about giddiness. Most upsetting phenomenon. Okay, giddiness, second paragraph, is two main types. There's one, objects we know to be stationary may seem to move. The other, and the other we may seem just feel unsteady, lightheaded. Our balance is normally maintained by such complex muscular coordination between eyes, ears, and eye and neck muscles that the slightest deviation from normal may make us sway and feel giddy. So you appreciate that giddiness may be an early visitor to the fatigued nervous system. It was for me. Giddiness is an early visitor to a fatigued nervous system, although an unimportant one, since it comes only in brief attacks and vanishes quickly with regained composure, composure and loss of fatigue. Unless you think, oh no, I'm having a brain tumor, I'm going to die. What did you just do? You just shot all kinds of adrenaline into your system, didn't you? Okay, turn to uh, page 54, I just want to talk about no, I'm talking about nausea. Okay, eating may be a problem. You've probably lost weight. You feel nauseated at the sight of food. Do not make a mistake of thinking. Because you feel nauseated and under stress, your food is doing you a little good. Therefore, you need not eat much. Even when eaten, and he's going to, even when eaten in these conditions, food will nourish you. Although it may take longer than normal digest, malnutrition and anemia can bring symptoms like yours, so you must keep eating. So don't worry, you feel like, oh, I don't want to eat because I'm going to say, keep eating. You need to keep nourishing yourself. All right, let's uh, talk about this page to, uh, uh, again, the difficulty in swallowing the summer to the lump in the throat. You know, same, same thing. Fear of vomiting, 55. Many nervously ill people are haunted by fear of vomiting in public, but have not yet met one who's actually done this. Many have gagged gently to themselves or have hurriedly left the hall to gag in the, uh, in the lane outside. But vomit food? No. This is remarkable when we realize, realize that short of putting his finger down his throat, a nervous pers person could hardly stimulate his stomach, abdominal and throat muscles more than he does by his tense, anxious control of them. It is not as easy for a healthy stomach to vomit food as one imagines. If a nervously ill person were to let go and give up the struggle to try not to vomit, his muscles would gradually relax and vomiting would be even less likely. If he does not vomit while tensely on guard, he certainly will not do so when he relaxes and lowers that guard. How much more comfortable will he be? Okay, I'm gonna go to page 56. 
And forgive me if you think I'm skipping something that you need to see, but you got the book. All right, 56, no symptoms can, no new symptoms can arise. This is important. It may comfort you to know that the action of adrenaline is always restricted to the same organs and so must always follow the same pattern. There are no more surprises in store for you. You ought to underline that because that alone is worth coming here Saturday morning to know this truth. It may come for you to know that the action of adrenaline is always restricted to the same organs, so must also follow the same pattern. There are no more surprises in store for you. This thought comforts most people because apprehension of what can happen next is a big part of their illness. Other than the symptoms already described, no new symptoms of any significance can arise. If you've had only some of the symptoms mentioned, do not immediately think you must now experience all of the others. It is unusual to have all these symptoms. Each of us has some parts of his body more sensitive than the rest, and which therefore react more readily to stimulation by adrenaline. If you have not been nauseated, it is because your stomach is strong enough to withstand tension. It should continue to do so. We all know that certain people have a tendency to heave when upset, others to run to the toilet, while others just churn inwardly. Few do all three. Your particular pattern has probably declared itself by now. So you can be comforted by the thought that you've experienced the worst. Okay, I want to skip now to page 65. And just a few things here I want us, this chapter, well, this chapter I want us to get. And then we're going to skip to the end. Okay, chapter 9, being yourself again. Having faced and accepted the disturbing sensations of nervous illness, your question will be, how long before I am myself again? Now, it is almost certain that despite your new approach to your illness, your symptoms will continue to return for some time, perhaps at first as acutely as before you read this book. You will understand this when you appreciate that your adrenaline-releasing nerves will continue to be fatigued and sensitized for some time longer in spite of the new approach, it takes time to heal. I often find that after talking for the first time to a nervously ill patient, he leaves the consulting room elated and convinced he's cured. So that he has found the magic wand at last, only to return a few days later disappointed and depressed in spite of a warning that this could happen. I explain again that, this, that his nerves need, need more time to respond to the new approach. That he's like a runner in a race who, having touched the goal and won the race, must continue to run some yards before he can stop. When these people finally understand and accept this, they take heart. Understanding and willingness to let more time pass finally work, finally works the miracle. Okay, underline the sentence here. Calm acceptance, despite delayed recovery, is your goal. Calm acceptance, despite the fact that it's maybe take some time here, is your goal. However, although you understand and try to accept calmly at first, you may find calm acceptance very difficult. Do not be disappointed. In the beginning, it is enough to direct your thoughts toward acceptance. Calm acceptance will follow in time. Also, it may be that although you wish to be unafraid, you may still add plenty of second fear. Do not be discouraged even by this. 
If you can but understand what I've been teaching you, you have made the first step toward recovery. It is enough at this stage to wish to be unafraid, provided you make up your mind to accept the strange feelings, although still afraid of them. You will gradually lose your fear because the decision to accept releases a certain tension and so reduces the inability, I'm sorry, reduces the intensity of your symptoms. This brings a little hope and you begin to gain confidence in recovery. Loss of fear eventually follows. Go down to keep occupied. It is essential that you be occupied while, while awaiting cure. However, I must warn you against feverishly seeking occupation in order to forget yourself. This is running away from fear, and you can't run far from fear. I want you to be occupied while facing your symptoms and to accept the possibility of the return from time to time during recovery. There is a world of difference between these two approaches. It is as if you halt your feverish rushing, relax, and walk more calmly, thinking to yourself, all right, let the feelings come. Running away won't prevent them, but if I accept them, they'll gradually calm down. In the meantime, I'll keep my mind occupied with work so they need not think of them unnecessarily. Okay, let's skip over to page 68. Gradual recovery. Physical exhaustion may delay recovery. But even here, with good food and peace of mind, two or three months are usually long enough to reclaim a person from nervous illness of some severity, provided he doesn't have too many setbacks. Let me stop here a second. Some of you that have only uh, had this in a short period of time, you apply this stuff for two or three weeks. You're going to see a massive recovery. Two or three weeks. Some of you have been dealing with this for years. Give yourself two or three months of doing this, and you'll see gigantic change. Okay, each patient recovers at his own pace, and this depends on the rate of returning confidence and peace of mind. The strength in a limb may depend on the confidence with which it is used. When you appreciate that wrong thinking can paralyze some people and keep them bedridden, you understand how hesitant, uh, diffident thinking can encourage weakness. Returning confidence and physical strength go hand in hand. Mrs. L had been attending a gymnasium weekly for three years when instructors interested in the treatment of functional nervous disorders were so anxious that their clients should not overtax their physical strength and so, and so insisted that recovery must be gradual that this woman, after three years, had little confidence in her own strength and was prepared to wait even longer for it to return fully. After I had pointed out that her real trouble was lack of confidence and not muscular weakness, and explained that she must free herself from thought paralysis and use her muscles to strengthen them, she surprised herself by the amount she could do in a few days. She said, I'm amazed. I only thought I could do these things. It doesn't seem possible that wrong thinking could have kept me so weak, but it has. I had a card from her recently. She said, I'm still using the golden key you gave me, and nobody can see my heels for dust. Do not watch the calendar. 
Do not watch the calendar and time your recovery. Let time pass, as little or much as necessary. Let the pace of your recovery look after itself. Be concerned only with recognizing and coping with second fear and the use of your muscles. The old forgotten sensations. When I review the difficulties of recovery, I would say that the most alarming of them all is the way panic can flash so intensely, so quickly, unexpectedly. Weeks, months, even years after a person thinks he's completely recovered. This unexpected return of panic causes more concern than any other aspect of nervous illness. It shocks, it frightens, and it reminds. That is why it's so shocking. It reminds of so much one would rather forget forever, of so much one thought one had forgotten. And the fear that is immediately added, together with the physical disturbance caused by the flash of panic, resensitizes slightly and brings back some of the old, almost forgotten sensations of nervous illness. So if the unwary sufferer is often bluffed into thinking it has returned or that it will return if he doesn't watch out. By the way, one of the things that you notice as you heal from sensitization and you don't have these symptoms anymore, but then all of a sudden you, you, you get yourself overwrought or you push yourself emotionally hard stress in a stressful situation and you have some symptoms return. You're desensitized. What, what, what I've noticed is you're, when you get desensitized again or re-desensitized, that you heal again quicker too. It won't take you as long as it did the first time. You can get back over it again. So you don't, don't, don't freak out. Hold on. Gosh, it's back. This is back. I know what to do. The same thing I did before, face except float that time pass. Instead of taking two or three months, it took two or three weeks the next time. Okay. Let's see, where am I? Back to the safety of home. Almost invariably, he makes the old mistake of capitulating before the feeling and trying to run away from it, watching over his shoulder for fear it comes again. One woman who had a return of panic while shopping immediately dashed back home and avoided that particular shop for weeks. She made the mistake of retreating from fear in fear once more. Never do this, underline that. Never do this. Never let the unexpected return of panic, whenever it may strike, even if it comes years after you think it was gone forever, never let it shock you into running away from it. Halt, go slowly, See the panic through, then quickly go on with whatever you were doing. Let the panic come again if it, again if it should. Don't give it any respect. Okay, some strain, some tension. Understand that some strain, some tension may have slightly sensitized you once more. Or that memory stirred by some sight, even some smell may have flashed the old feeling again. Any one of us at times feels sensitized by strain, on edge, apprehensive. If this happens to a person who has at one time felt panic intensely, his feelings of apprehension can so quickly flash to panic because the weight of panic in him is so well-worn that one could almost say his panic mechanism is well-oiled. If you can accept for a long time to come, and by this I mean even years, that you can give yourself a strong flash of panic from time to time. And if you can understand this means no more than if you are slightly sensitized for the moment, 
or that memory has stirred the embers of your illness, if you can accept the panic without withdrawing from it, then you are truly recovered, despite occasional bouts of panic. Recovery from panic always lies on the other side of panic, never on this side. Put a big star by that paragraph. This is really important for us to get this. So again, I want to read it to you again. If you can accept for a long time to come, by this I mean even years, that you can give yourself a strong flash of panic from time to time. If you can understand this means no more than you are slightly sensitized for the moment or that memory has stirred the embers of your illness. If you can accept the panic without withdrawing from it, then you are truly recovered. Despite occasional bouts of panic, no big deal, recovery from panic always lies on the other side of panic, never on this side. What she's trying to say there is, don't think, I'm only recovered if it never happens again. You're recovered and you're cured if you're not afraid of it anymore. Because it will happen less and less. If it does, it's no big deal. And if, and if it can happen to you later, and you pay no much attention, and you are recovered, because it, will, it won't be able to grip you. Okay. In search of the old sensations, you may sometimes go in search of the old sensations to try to. Uh, to try yourself out thinking it too, too good to be true, that you're free from this wretched thing, go ahead. You can come to no harm if you go toward them and don't withdraw from them. What cured you in the past, facing, accepting, she's floating, she's putting it to, floating and letting time pass, will continue to do so in spite of any setbacks. So accept any setback, however long it may last, and let more time pass. Say a word about understanding setback. The contrast between the hope and peace experienced in a good period and the renewed suffering felt in a setback highlight the setback and make it seem more unendurable than ever. In other words, you everything you had had for a long time, something happens, that could be pretty unendurable. It is this contrast that make, may make the early setback seem so especially severe and bring such disappointment and despair that the sufferer may decide the struggle to climb the ladder to recovery again is beyond him. It seems as if some thing is always ready to drag him back whenever he tries to go forward. He had thought that he had that he recovered. Setbacks, if they occurred at all, would be less and less severe, occur less and less often, and so they might. But, as I just explained, they may just as well seem worse than ever. Indeed, the worst setback of all may come just before complete recovery, just because recovery is so close. The closeness of recovery makes any setback at that time especially frustrating. And yet, however severe setback may be, and however close to recovery it may come, it makes no difference to complete recovery if it's coped with the right way. That is why, when trying to recover, you should understand the tricks memory can play and understand setbacks so well that you're not discouraged by it, however long it may last or whenever it may come. When you understand setback and have adjusted your attitude to it, you've unmasked the bogey of nerves and they can never completely frighten you again. Underline that. There will always be that inner core of confidence and strength to help you pass through fear. 
And because this confidence has been, has been born the hard way, from your own experience, you'll never quite lose it. You may falter, but you'll never be completely overwhelmed again. Star that. As you lose your fear and regain confidence, you will lose interest in your sensations. You'll begin to forget yourself for a moment, for moments, and then for hours at a time. Outside interests claim you. You rejoin a world of other people, and you are yourself again. Page 72, you recover then by facing, accepting, floating, and letting time pass. You begin to know this pattern by heart. I hope so. I want you to know it so thoroughly that your thoughts fly to it when in doubt or difficulty. It will never fail you if you apply it correctly. Okay, just a few more pages on the reading when we're done with the book. I want to hand out the through, but skip over to. Let's go to page uh, go to page 167. It's chapter 23. Three good friends. She talks about occupation, courage, and religion. She's probably she's probably Anglican. She you know she, she talks about the course of faith in God. She's not writing this like a Christian book would be written, perhaps. But I think it's just full of truth, and all truth is God's truth, right? So three good friends: occupation, courage, and religion. What she means here, and in fact, you can just go to the end of this chapter. Go to page. Go to page one eighty-one. And I just, I'm just going to do one paragraph here. One eighty-one. Second paragraph from one eighty-one: the person who bears his suffering with patience. What she means here is letting more time pass, and resignation, acceptance. And faith that God will cure him has found a way to recovery. Okay, so she talks about courage. It takes courage to. I think. I think. I think it takes amazing courage to do what we're talking about. To accept these things coming in your body and just sit there and accept them. It takes a lot of courage. And it takes a lot of faith. Okay, God, I'm trusting you. I'm, I'm just totally falling into your hands here. I'm not going to fight this thing. And then occupation means. Don't be feverishly busy, but stay busy. Go about your day. Go about your work. You know, put her around. You know, and and just uh, after a while, you know, think about it more. Okay, go to page one eighty-two, and these are. And I'm gonna stop here. I think. Yeah, I'm just gonna stop here with the book. Okay, one eighty-two and eighty-three. The do's and don'ts. This is a great review. I want you to star a few of these. Number one star, do not run away from fear. Analyze it and see it as no more than a physical feeling. Do not be bluffed by a physical feeling. Star number two, accept all the strange sensations connected with your illness. Do not fight them. Float past them. Recognize that they are temporary. Star that one. Star number three, let there be no self-pity. Don't ever say, don't ever think, woe is me. Well, is me. Don't do it. Don't give yourself any pity. All right, go to number seven. Start that one. Be occupied. Do not lie in bed brooding. Be occupied, 
calmly, not feverishly trying to forget yourself. Star number eight. Remember the strength in a muscle may depend on the confidence with which it is used. Okay, so don't start thinking I need to go easy on myself now. I've got this bad health. And nothing wrong with your health. I mean, I'm not assuming you went to the doctor, okay? Again, let me reiterate that. Nothing's wrong with your health. Use, use, you got good, strong body. Use it. Okay, number 11, start that one. Do not measure your progress day by day. Don't count the months, years, you've been ill and despair at the thought of them. Once you are on the right road to recovery, recovery is inevitable. It will happen. Okay, start 12. Remember, withdrawal, withdrawal is your jailer. Recovery lies on the other side of panic. Recovery lies in the places you fear. You know, you don't start avoiding places because you're afraid of what might happen. That will keep you sick. Go. Go to places. Relax something, something starts, you start to feel panic, just relax. Let it come. I've even told people, they go, oh, pass out. Pass out. <laughs> go ahead. You'll get up in a minute. <laughs> Who cares if you pass out? I mean, I'm saying that's the kind of attitude you need to have toward this thing. And then they stop being afraid of it, and then it loses its grip on you. Okay, 16. Face, accept, float. Let time pass. If you do this, you will recover. Face, accept, float, and let time pass. And you will recover. Okay, guys, I want to pass a handout now coming around. Just send this back. Just pass this back, if you would. Now, originally, when I was going to do the Grace University, I was going to take from 9 to 3. I told you guys at noon, so I'm going to get you out at noon. But uh, and I think that you're going to have enough, enough tools here to walk out the door with that every one of you guys are going to be better off because you came here today in big ways. Okay, so there's a handout coming. The title of the handout is Panic, Anxiety, and Stress. And as it's coming back, I just keep sending it back, backwards, so everyone gets one. And we should have enough for everybody. By the way, again, did somebody not get a book today that needs a book? Okay. Gloria, when you come up here. <laughs> okay, the problem... Panic, anxiety, stress. The problem, they predicted in the 1960s that with all the inventions and discoveries that were coming, we'd be bored by now. Instead, we're exhausted and overloaded with stress. Progress works by giving us more and more of everything faster and faster. Progress, therefore, automatically leads to increasing stress, change. More, there's been more change since, since 1900 than all recorded history before that. Complexity. We must learn to operate 20,000 pieces of technology today. Speed. Is there a speed limit to life? And overload. I tell you, there is a, I don't think there's ever been a culture at a time stressed out as our culture does right now. You know, anything horrible happens in the world, we, we know it right away, don't we? We get to know every negative thing instantly. And then all these time-saving devices we got? 
I'm busier than ever. How's that? We're just, I mean, everything, we just, we just added, you know, stress, stress, stress. I've got, we have missionaries that come back from other countries, and they come back and they're here for a couple of weeks, they're like, i got to get out of here. Because everything's fast-paced, you know, and stressed. Okay, so the solution. Well, for the overwhelmed is what we just did. Read Hope and Hope for Your Nerves by Claire Weeks. Follow the simple steps. Face, accept, float, let time pass. The difference between panic and recovery? Recovered sufferers have overcome their fear of panic. Okay, now, everyone needs margins. Margin is really crucial for continuing. When, you get, when, you, when your body is desensitized, there's certain changes in the way you live. You need to change some lifestyle patterns to stay desensitized, okay? To stay healthy. That's what I want to talk about. First of all, mentally. How do you think determines how you feel and how you think can be changed? A, slow down your thinking, challenge mistaken beliefs, speak truth to yourself. Let's just get this down. Slow down your thinking. Sometimes it's just thoughts are racing through your mind. Slow it down. Slow down your thinking. Then, challenge mistaken beliefs. What is it that I'm believing right now that's making me feel anxious? What lie am I believing? Challenge it. And then speak truth to yourself. And we're going to talk about the scriptures and how important they are in this moment. I want to give you an example of speaking truth to yourself. I'll give you a couple of the verses that I've used many, many times and still do. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. The truth? It's truth, right? Alright. I want you all to just close your eyes a minute. I want to take this one verse. And I want to say it some different ways. So close your eyes. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. The Lord. The Lord. Think about who it is we're talking about. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. The Lord is right now. The Lord is right now. My shepherd. I shall not lack. The Lord is my, my shepherd, I shall not lack. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. Hey, look up here. A lot of times, one of the people stressed out and nervously ill is the idea of all the what ifs. But the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. Whatever I need, when I need it, I'll get it. What, what, if, what if the doctor missed this one? The Lord's bigger than the doctor. The Lord's my shepherd. Hold that. I'll get Whatever I need, when I need it, I'll get it. It's not all up to me. He's my shepherd. I'm a sheep. So just let him be your shepherd. That's just a simple example of speaking the truth to yourself. I speak that to myself often. I right, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Think about that for a moment. 
The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. I mean, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'll be with them forever. Everything down here is temporary. The joy of the Lord. All my sins are forgiven. He's given me everything I need. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I just receive strength. Just, just meditating on the joy of the Lord. You know? I start and I say, okay. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm going to choose joy. I'm going to choose to think about all the great things that have ha- that are happening, have happened to me, will are happening, and will happen to me because of the Lord in my life. The joy of the Lord is my strength, and I just feel strength coming in my body as I do that. Joy of the Lord, choose joy. I want to choose the joy of the Lord today. And you can feel it. Some of you are feeling it right now. You feel stronger. It's real. Speak truth to yourself. So slow down your thinking. Challenge mistaken beliefs. What line am I believing is making me anxious right now? Challenge it. And speak truth to yourself. Okay, now, well, how do you type A's? I just want to say something about type A personality, since I know it well. Type A personality, always in a hurry. Even my kids were little, I was bathing them sometimes. They were dancing in circles, you know, all naked, dancing. I threw them in the tub, they're dancing. I had a t- towel, and I'm sitting on the toilet, the towel saying, Come here, come here, dry you off. And they're dancing. I said, Hurry, hurry. And one of them said, Why? And I said, I don't know. I don't know why I'm in a hurry. But I am. But I need to stop being in a hurry. And so you type A guys and gals, slow down. Also, another thing is a deep sense of just, justice. You know, we got to fix the whole world. Well, you know what? One thing the Lord spoke to me one time was that you have an exaggerated view of your role in the drama of life, Gary. <laughs> See, it isn't all up to us. God is in control of everything, not us. I can't fix everything. I can't fix every problem. Neither can you. Or quick to become hostile. Must maintain control. That's a good one just to lose right there. I got to maintain control. Really? How long is that been working for you? <laughs> Only God can maintain control. So don't worry. You can't control everything. So stop trying. All these characteristics send fight, flight and fight signals to the body. They all bring about a drill and burst. You know, I came back from a, a sabbatical one time, early on after I, I was just learning how to do all this, and walk through this healing. And I had some, a lot of family drama during sabbatical. I mean, family drama off the charts. So I, and I came back from sabbatical and I thought, I'm worse now than when I left. And I gotta go, I gotta jump back in the saddle here. And then the, the, what the Lord spoke to me was, I want you to learn that I'm your rest. And you can rest anywhere. And you need to learn to rest anywhere. Not just the beach or the mountains. or But learn to rest in Him. So I said, okay, I guess I'm going to learn how to rest going back to work. And I did. And I learned to do stuff in peace that I'd never done in peace before. No, it wasn't that I was anxious, but I was always pressing. Emotional. Another thing God taught me was emotional. My emotional energy does not help the kingdom of God. It's spiritual power. 
It's not emotional. It's not me just inserting more emotion into something that's going to make the kingdom expand. Do y'all follow me on that? It's not revving up the motor, you know. Okay. All right, C, drop the what is and change your attitude to so what. James 5, 7 says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. So what are you caring about? Now, I think we got this kind of uh, twisted view of spirituality that if I'm not really worried about something, then I'm not really being responsible. If I'm not really concerned and caring, isn't that what God wants me to be like? Well, no, he says, I want you to cast all your cares on me. I care for you. So what do you care about? I don't care about nothing. And that doesn't sound unspiritual to say that. And now in a sense, cast all your cares on him, he cares for you. Give it all to him. So again, doesn't mean we shouldn't be compassionate and all that. I'm just mean that we just we don't need to carry all that stuff. And so when, when someone comes and shares a big burden with me, I engage. And I genuinely am, you know, am, am compassionately engage with that person and pray about it. And I spend a lot of times I say, let's pray right now. You know one of the reasons I said let's pray right now is first of all, so I'll make sure I do pray. How many, how many times you told someone I'll pray for you and didn't do it? So I said, let's pray right now. And second of all, when, when I'm done praying for you, I've got to give this burden to the Lord. I can't carry my burdens in yours and everyone else's. I've got to give this to the Lord. I can't live like that. Okay. D, laugh more. Laugh more. I tell you, we don't laugh enough. Laugh. Laughter is good medicine, the Bible says. Laugh. And do things that make you laugh. You know, there are lots of wholesome ways to go to laugh, aren't there? And uh, Tracy and I, if we can find a good wholesome movie that makes us laugh, we will go get it. And we will laugh. We need to laugh. Laugh more. Laughter's good medicine. E, don't hurry. Slow down. Learn to relax. These are all ways of changing the way that we think. Okay, physically. Now, I know, that, I know that all my advice is going to be taken today. And I'm going to give it anyway. Some of you, if you just got off caffeine, would, change, would help you a lot. I mean, people can do You can have... You, caffeine alone, I believe, can put you some panic attack. Drink enough of it. I had not had a cup of coffee in 10 years. And I had any tea. I don't drink tea. I don't drink Diet Cokes. I drink water. And it's, it's just, and I feel better. I sleep better. I'm not on edge. You know, I, I watch some of, the, some of the staff, and our staff, I see them staff, and their, their legs are just going like this, you know. And I'm like, how many cups of coffee you had today? Well, stop. You know, relax. Caffeine alone, again, you're saying, well, you know, if you can't get off of it, cut it down some, you know. Yeah, but that alone will have a lot of you. Uh, B, I say no alcohol or little. What I'm going to say here is the Bible says don't be drunk with wine. What I'm saying is I think people who try to, to dull their pain with alcohol a lot of times end up drinking too much and drink too often. And they could become a problem. So I've never, I, I, I'll teach this what the Bible teaches, but I'm saying for someone who's really struggling with nervous illness, I would say, don't let alcohol be your solution. Let me just put it that way. Don't let that be your solution. It's not going to be a healthy solution. And I have found that people that, even if they drink in a moderate way, 
while they're healing, if they got off it while they're healing, they heal faster. Because it is a stimulant. You don't need any more stimulants. We need to get this, we need to get off stimulants. It's a stimulant. Okay? Okay. C. Exercise and stretch daily. Get all those stress endorphins out. I mean, have some kind of exercise. If you just walk 20 minutes every day. But have some kind of exercise stretch. And it's relaxing. But uh, exercise is a big thing for me. I mean, I feel so much better. If, I, if I'm not exercising, I, I feel, I feel the stress on me that I need to get out. Sleep well at nights and take naps. There was a... Uh, the average person needs eight hours of sleep a night. Some of you had eight hours, I don't know how long. While you're healing from nervous illness, I think you need 10 hours. And you're thinking, I can't stay in bed 10 hours. Yes, you can. And so I can't sleep 10 hours. Just stay in bed. Just stay relaxed. And you say, well, I, 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 can't, I can't do it all at once. Well, don't do it once. Do eight hours at night and then two, two hours during the day for a while. Or at least take eight hours and do 30-minute nap. So I, I don't sleep my nap. I just lay there and relax. See, it's all about letting our adrenaline system reset. And, and one of the things I did for many years is I, I was sleep deprived. I mean, no matter what time I went to bed, I was up at 5 o'clock. And I would just press through. I'd drink coffee and I'd press through. And I pressed and pressed and pressed for years and years and years. And I believe that stress is cumulative. I believe it does add up. Until you, have, you finally have fatigued your system and your adrenaline system says, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> I'm tired. So I'm going to overproduce and underproduce. How do you like that? And, and so getting sleep, sleep is crucial to being healed. There was a, a Jewish psychiatrist that people were going to that, was, that a lot of people were getting healed. And they said, what's your secret? He said, I tell everybody to do two things. People were coming with him with all kinds of nervous illness. And he told them to do two things. And almost everybody's getting healed. You know what he told them? Two things. Number one, I want you to sleep 10 hours a day. I don't care how you get it, when you get it. 10 hours a day for six weeks. And I want you to take an hour walk every day with God. That was it. And almost everybody that went to him got better. And so sleep is big. It's, you know, sleep. And, and it's... Uh, and she said, well... I can't sleep. I don't sleep. I don't sleep. Just, even if you just lay there and relax and don't brew, just lay there and relax, even that helps your adrenaline system reset. So I tell people, don't worry about sleeping. Just lay down. Just lay down and relax. And you will sleep some too. Okay, eat healthy. And then there, there could be a whole handout on this. In fact, I did have a lot more specifics on that. I just took it all out let you guys figure that one out. All right, take walks. I already said something about that. G. After a stressful situation, allow yourself plenty of time to unwind. And do your unwinding slowly. In other words, avoid a sudden drop in adrenaline. Take a walk. Putter around. Sit and read. Finally, relax completely. Don't go to bed right away after a stressful situation. Sometimes if you've been in a real high-stress situation and adrenaline's really been pumping, and then you go right from that to trying to go to sleep, that drop in, a sudden drop in adrenaline, can, that alone can give you some symptoms. And so just when you've had a, had a big day, putter around. I putter around. I got a little stuff I do around my house or out in my shed. That means nothing, you know, but I putter. Okay, H, reduce stress and over-arousal and pleasure-seeking. In other words, a lot of young people particularly, it's like, oh, that's an adrenaline rush, man. Let's do it. I'm like, I don't want an adrenaline rush. I've had plenty of it in my life. 
I'm trying to, I'm trying to minimize those in my life. So, yeah, Mountain Dew, by the way, is a good thing not to drink, anyway. Uh, okay. Uh, take control of your environment. Oh, by the way, let me say more thing about age. There's a difference between going on vacation and taking a trip. Y'all know the difference, don't you? Some people get two weeks off. Instead of taking a vacation and relaxing, they go on a trip. And every day is a program. They got it laid out. They got the itinerary. We got to do all this today. Two weeks of that, you got to go back to work to rest, don't you? So we need to make sure we are taking vacations and not just trips. All right. Uh, I take control of your environment, telephone, interruptions, demands. Do we really have to be able to be getting out in touch with every minute of the day? Do we really? I mean, most of us in here, well, at least probably looking around, say half of us remember we didn't have cell phones. And you could be in a car and nobody could reach you. Wasn't that a good time? <laughs> Turn the radio off and just have quiet. Oh, you know, the phone does have an off button. We can turn it off. And it's amazing how many people think it's emergency and it's not. You know, most, most things, they can't wait. And so, give yourself some downtime. All right, Jay, avoid sleeping pills. Now, if, if you need them right now, it's fine, take them. But uh, I really encourage you to get to where you are sleeping without them because the sleep without them is much better for you, much more healing. Try to get there. Some of you think, I don't know if I can ever get there, but try to get there. And eventually, you will sleep, I guarantee you. You will sleep. Get tired of that. All right, emotionally, reduce personal conflict. You know, if you're you know, suffering, you know, trying to heal from nervous illness and having fights with your spouse, that isn't a good thing. That is not helping you heal. Reduce personal conflict. If you've got personal conflict with anybody, heal it up. You need to go ask for forgiveness, go do it. Don't, don't let there be anybody you hate. Don't let there be anybody that you resent. I mean, just forgive everybody. For your own good, forgive them. Okay? And it's, it really doesn't matter. Reduce personal conflict. B, reduce internal conflict. Here I mean values and goals not achieved. I mean, don't be so driven. You know, and there's, I could do a whole thing on the difference between being a called person and a driven person. A driven person is primarily trying to win the approval of others. And so it, it might even be somebody that's dead and gone. You're still, you're still driven to, to accomplish that for what mom or dad wanted in your life. And we're driven. We've got these goals, and if we don't meet them, you know, that, that's a stressful situation. Just don't be driven. Be called. Called person realizes, what, you know, whatever I got, I got from heaven. I'm a steward of God. I, I do it. I, I'll walk through whatever door he opens. I'm available to obey him anytime. But I don't really care what people think about me anymore. Tell you, let yourself off the hook. Just live for an audience of one. I, my daughter tells me you've heard her play the harp, and while she's a little girl playing a harp, I'd always tell her when she was nervous before she played, and she played at Carnegie Hall at one, one point in her twenties. <clears throat> and I said, I just, I tell her, play for an audience of one. Just, just play for Jesus. If Jesus was sitting there, would you be nervous playing? No, I wouldn't be nervous playing for Jesus. That's what you play for tonight. I don't care who else is in the room. Well, that's how we need to live our lives. Let's just live it for Him. It's a lot less stressful because He's uh, He loves us just the way we are. Okay. Uh, C, be thankful. Just start listening to all the things you're grateful for. It's amazing how healing that is. Be thankful. How much stress-reducing that is. 
Do you cut yourself and others more grace? Well, wouldn't it be good if we all just did that? Let's all cut ourselves some more grace. How about let's all cut each other more grace? And just let's just be more, let's be easier on each other. Let's have a less stressful environment. Uh, e, limit your time with negative people. Uh, now again, some of, some of this you have control over, some of you don't. But where you have a choice, you know, I'm not saying, you, I didn't say don't spend any time with negative people because we're here to minister to everybody, right? But limit your time with people that you know after you've been with them you don't feel at all refreshed, you feel drained. Well, control your schedule with that. Okay? Uh, have some fun. We already talked some about that. I think it's good to have a couple things a week that you just look forward to. Say, you know, I'm involved in this, but I've got this hobby. I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm, I, I, I go play racquetball, or I play basketball, or I like to go shoot guns, or I got, I got this dog. We go to do some dog training, whatever it is. Have something you say two times a week. I do this, and it's just, it's just a hobby. It's fun for me. We all need those kinds of things. Uh, G, spend more time with good friends. This is this is a big one. It's, I mean, friends that, what kind of friendships you have that there's time when the evening's over and you're going, oh man, I gotta go. I don't want to go because it's, it's it's like feeding you friends. You know, it's it's those kinds of friends. You know, when you uh, we don't always have to be with people we don't like. It's okay to be with people you like. I'm saying we need to be loving to everybody. But there's times you just need to be with people that just being with them feeds you, refreshes you. It's fun being with them. One time we were playing golf and put some guys together. Someone wanted us to play golf and another one of the guys said, I don't want him to come play golf. And he said, I know this sounds unspiritual, but I don't want him to come play. I don't like him. I said, that's not unspiritual. I mean, we ought to have times where we're with people that we just like. Those are times that help us emotionally. Okay? We need to plan them. None of us probably do it enough. I know I don't. Okay, spiritual, spiritual, spiritually, Scripture meditation. I talked a little bit about this. And I was hoping I'd to do this. Back to this. I got, here's, I got a stack of three by five cards. These are verses that, and these cards are bent up and well-worn. These are a stack of verses that I have gone through so many times about how God thinks about me, feels about me, how much I can trust Him, how much He's in control, how good He is, all those kinds of things. I meditate and meditate meditate. But that just means I read it, I think about it, I pray about it, I read it, I think about it, I pray about it. And I was going to read you some of these, maybe I'll have time, and you can write some of these verses down for yourself if you like to. Because, and you can just write your own. But I can't tell you how many times this was like my lifeline. Holding on to these truths was my lifeline. Okay? Okay, so scripture, meditation, prayer. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer. Right? With thanksgiving. Make your request known to God. The peace of God surpasses all comprehension. Will guard your hearts and minds of Christ Jesus. Which you can do. I used to do this little exercise. I would take a piece of paper and I would write down, I would draw a line down the middle and write, worry. Worry column. Everything I'm worried about. I just write it all down. Sometimes it's good just to get it out. Because sometimes you're thinking, this is rushing through your mind anyway. I write everything I'm worried about. And then I write Philippians 4, 6, and 7. 
And what it says, be anxious for nothing but everything, pray, right? So then I write all those prayer requests on that I was worried about. One at a time, I pray about it. As soon as I pray, but on the prayer, prayer side, I cross it off the worry side. Seems like a pretty juvenile little exercise, right? It's very helpful. I pray about it. I give it to you, Lord. I'm not worried about it anymore. Next line. I write out the prayer. Pray about that, Lord. I cross off the worry line. I'm not worried about it anymore. I may have to do it again tomorrow. But the more I do it, the less I worry. So pray about everything. Worry about nothing. I see worship. We draw near to God. He draws near to us. And, and when you're drawing near to God in worship, when you're just kind of lost in His presence, it's amazing how peaceful you are at that time. Okay. Uh, D, feel the power that Christ gives you. Move beyond the cognitive. It's just not in your head. Let Christ's power seep into your bones and lift your courage. And I just say things like, I can do all things to Christ. He strengthens me. That is your word. That is your promise. Lord, I receive your strength right now. Like a bacon in the air. I just receive it. I believe I got it. I'm going to act like I got it. Okay, E, humble yourself so you can find rest for your souls. I tell you, a pride will keep us emotionally ill for sure. Nervous, nervously ill. We just need to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves. Find rest for our souls. F, remember that love never fails. Love never fails. Another thing I found, I've learned, is that if I get my eyes off myself and I'm thinking about helping other people, that heals me. The more it's not about, you lose, forget about yourself and just think about, how can I bless this person, this person, this person? Going to a meeting instead of thinking, oh no, what's going to happen to me? I have a panic attack thing. I want to try to bless somebody that's me. Forget about yourself. Go bless them. Go encourage. Love never fails. Go love somebody. I tell you a little thing. I, a little thing. I pray. And I pray on a regular basis. I pray, Lord. I ask you today to give me love in my heart for people. I ask you to give me joy in my soul. The, Lord, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I ask you to give me peace in my mind because you're in control. I'm not. I just say it to myself. My prayer. Love in my heart. Joy in my soul. Peace in my mind. Okay. And G, remember, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To die is gain, guys. One of the things that keeps people you know, stuck in nervous illness is they're scared of dying. A lot of times the root of a panic attack is the old no, the old no is I'm going to die. And when you can get to where you say, Oh, good. Oh, good. For me to die is game. To live is Christ. You know, I'm beyond living in this rat hole. I'll live for you, Jesus. But to die is game. It's better. And the more you believe that, because you're in Christ, the less you're afraid of it. And if you're not afraid of dying, so maybe it's amazing how much you're going to heal. Your nervous system is going to heal. Because that usually is the one that gets, that's underlining all the other fears. All the oh no's, all the oh my goodnesses that she talks about. All the what ifs. What if? What if this is a brain tumor? What if I'm going to die? Change it to so what? For me to die is gain. You're on an assignment. As a Christian, you're on an assignment. Your assignment might be 
20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 70, 80, 90. Whatever it is, you're on assignment. And then you live forever. And you never die. You never experience death because you're a Christian now. You say, he believes in me? Though he dies, yet he lives, right? Yet he will live. You will never die. You will be here and you will be there and you will never experience some horrible thing called death as a Christian. It never, never happens. You will never die. And so you've heard him tell the story. I remember a little child uh, playing with some toys in the living room. And I, I don't remember falling asleep. All I remember is playing with toys. I remember waking up in my bedroom with the light shining through the morning and waking up. I never remember tasting sleep. I was playing with toys as a child. I did fall asleep and I carried my bed, obviously. And I remember playing toys and I, I wake up and it's morning and I never tasted sleep. I never, I never experienced sleep in a sense. I just remember that and that. That's how death is for the Christian. You never experience it. You're here and you're there and you never taste it. Isn't that good enough? You will never taste some horrible thing called death. You will be here and you'll be in the presence of glory. And no one who's in that presence of glory goes, can I go back? Nobody does. Everybody's glad to be there. Eye has not seen, ears not heard, nor has even entered into the imagination, the heart of a man, what God has prepared for those who love him. And I can imagine a lot of good stuff. And it's beyond what I can imagine. It's beyond what you can imagine. Waiting for us. So we don't even be afraid to die. We're here to live and live for Christ. Whenever we die, it's his call. He's already written down in a book anyway. According to Psalm 139, all your days are written in a book. He's already decided when you're going. Jesus said, which of you can add one cubit, 18 inches, of your lifespan by worrying? Nobody. You can't. So why are you going to worry? Well, I'm afraid of, I'm just, I'm afraid of, God's going to shorten my, my life, you know. And, and I'm like, how long have you had that fear? 15 years? Well, obviously that's not true. You just keep living. And if you do, you go into the presence of glory. Now, I'll give you a couple things on margins financially. I'm not even going to talk about these. I've talked about these recently on a Sunday morning. But basically, some financial strains add to the stress. And anytime we can you know, work, work to get out of debt and become a, a giver, will make you a happier person. It'll make you a much healthier person. So that's a couple more practical things. The guys, it's right at noon. What I'm going to do, and I haven't given you a chance to ask questions, and I have a lot of questions. I do my best to hang around here and answer them personally. I do want to get you out here when I said I would. And uh, take that book with you and benefit from it. Uh, look through this outline some more and, and take these trees into your lives. Some of you know others that can benefit from this. Encourage them the same things you've been encouraged by. And stay the course. And every one of you, Every one of you is on the road now to recovery, recovery and health and peace in greater measure and pass it on to others. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for truth that uh, really knowing the truth sets us free from all kinds of bondage and, and darkness. We thank you for all the, the things you've taught us today. We pray you would enable every one of us to walk in these things. And as a result, be able to live the kind of joyful, peaceful lives that you want us to and to be even a greater reflection of you to this lost and dying world. We commit ourselves to you. We're glad we belong to you. We're so glad you're our shepherd. Glad you've written all our days in a book and we can trust you as the only wise God who's got good in store for us 
every day. We trust you. We commit our lives in your hands. In your hands, in Jesus' name. Amen.